Welcome to the Engine Presents podcast. In this episode, we'll be exploring workplace burnout. Recently, the World Health Organization categorized burnout as an occupational phenomenon, recognizing how much this has become a global issue. Our own latest research as well also identified that six in 10 of us believe it's harder to balance work and life than it ever has been before. So why exactly are so many of us burning out? What aspects of the workplace and the way we work are leading to this? And most importantly, what can we do to tackle this and start enjoying our work again? I'm Helen Shaw, a principal consultant in the Engine Transformation team. And today I'm very excited to be joined by Bruce Daisley, EMEA Vice President of Twitter, creator of the hit podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and most recently author of best-selling book, The Joy of Work. Through his podcast and his book, Bruce has been looking at the science behind our current world of work and how it affects us, exploring psychology, neuroscience and other areas for some answers for how we can all rediscover the joy of work. So welcome, Bruce. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, firstly, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on how we've got ourselves into this place. How, are we, how have we got ourselves here where burnout is such a widespread thing that it's become, you know, a key part of the agenda for even the World Health Organization? What's, what's gone wrong? <laughs> yeah, the, the short answer is it's connectivity. It's, it's, it's our devices. Um, and the, the challenge is, I think, the, the fact that email arrived on our mobile phones actually felt, felt quite benign. It felt like a, a good thing. It allowed us to be connected. Mm-hmm. You know, if we wanted to, if we had clients who we wanted to stay in touch with or we had agencies that we wanted to, to brief on things, being connected to email felt like a really good thing. The challenge of it is, is that um, the mental availability we've given to work has, mm-hmm. has had a step change. So it's, it's gone up by about a quarter. The average working day has gone up from seven and a half hours a day to nine and a half hours a day. One survey of American workers suggested that if their firm expected them to stay connected to email, they were putting in about a 70-hour working week just routinely. And so all of us have found that by being constantly connected, what happens is that it puts us in a state of heightened vigilance. It sort of puts us in this this state where our cortisol levels are constantly uh, elevated and cortisol levels being elevated. Cortisol in itself isn't a explicitly bad thing, mm. but being constantly in a state of ed- elevated cortisol. Uh, it's, it's like a caffeine rush. You get the caffeine rush and then there's a caffeine sag afterwards. Yeah. And we find ourselves feeling just burnt out, exhausted, frazzled from from those, <laughs> high, th- those highs put us into a, a low afterwards. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think I've, I've, I've seen a, um, a presentation about the impact of kind of continuous levels of cortisol and how it affects pretty much everything in your body. It really has got quite a negative effect in terms, yeah. of, in terms of your health. It's one a, one of the most thing. uh, brutal things I saw this year, there was the, a survey into doctors, junior doctors. And so junior doctors who were putting in long hours and, and were running on adrenaline and cortisol and their bodies were aging six times faster oh, than their, their cohort of similarly aged people. Wow. So not only are we running ourselves on, on stress, but it's also aging our whole bodies. Gosh, so not just That's the kind of short term effects, yeah. we're really long that's that's something to think about for sure <laughs> um I, I know when you came in and spoke to us uh, last month as well at our um our launch event you kind of talked about um open plan offices actually as well that kind of how that can really sort of play into the fact that we're not necessarily kind of being particularly productive at work as well and and how that can maybe lead to longer hours in the long run as well because we're not really getting things done in our uh day-to-day 
Yeah, when you ask people when they've had a good day at work, so probably the, one of the biggest surveys into this was conducted by a, a business psychologist called Teresa Amable, and, and she gathered diaries from people across uh, hundreds of industries. Mm. And, you know, the, the results were very straightforward. A good day at work is when someone has made progress in something meaningful. I think we can all recognise that. Taking things it? off a to-do yeah, list. Yeah, when you've yeah, got something feels done. feels good. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, that's what you describe as a good day at work. Sort of very simple. Yeah. However, the the... The way that modern work is configured is almost designed to prevent us doing that. So most of us find ourselves having 16 hours a week of meetings. We find 200 emails that we send and receive every day. Then we come out into an open plan office where we're interrupted with people talking about what the big TV moment was last night. And and we, we just find ourselves constantly beset with these demands upon us Mm. and the consequence of it is that just work doesn't feel satisfying it doesn't feel like we're we're meeting moments of of achieving that rewarding dopamine of of just getting things done Mm. and what were the what kind of things would you recommend then if we if we work in an open plan office and I guess you know for a lot of us we can't control that um what kind of things can we put into play that that you know help with some of the issues that that causes. Yeah, a, a couple of people I spoke to had just got simple hacks, which were one person had monk mode morning. And so monk mode morning was once or twice a week for, for 90 or 60 minutes yeah. at the start of the day, they would, like a monk, be fully uninterrupted, <laughs> not turn your email on till you've done this. And it might be you do it from 8.30 till 9.30 at home or from 9 mm. till 11, whatever you choose to find the, sort of the best rhythm for you. But you'll get your most important thing done yeah. in that time. Only then do you open your email. Only then maybe do you even venture into work. Mm. And what you find is that, Firstly, most of us can find 60 minutes or 90 minutes to get a block of work done. But you'd be astonished. We're we're so used to work feeling desperately unproductive, but you'd be astonished what you get done on it. That Mm. document that has been sitting there that you know you need to get it done, suddenly 90 minutes concentrating on it and it's finished. Um, And so I think it's about that. It's about trying to... It's small adaptations, really. Yeah, there's always there's always that big meaty task that you That's kind right. of know you've got to do, um, but it's so difficult to get it done. It's very easy to procrastinate, isn't it, in the office? And as you say, have chats with your colleagues, maybe tick off some of the smaller things to do. But yeah, that meaty task, doing that first thing in the morning. And when you're carrying something on your to-do list for weeks and weeks and yeah. weeks, when you suddenly discover that an hour of hard work got it done, it's, you think, right, OK, and I just need to commit to doing those things more frequently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, meetings as well is a really interesting point. And I know you spoke about this as well when we met, when we met last. Um, the fact that we're having 16 hours of meetings a week on average is, is pretty intense. I mean, what kind of things can we do to, to get the best from, from meetings? Or do, should, should we even have that many yeah, meetings? I think the critical thing about um, meetings is that they enforce self-moderation. And self-moderation can feel exhausting. So mm. y- you know when you're trying to put the ve- best version of yourself on, and that's always existed, right? I always think jazz hands and all yeah, of that. I always, yeah, well, I always think, did your mum have a phone voice? I'm not sure if your mum did, but my mum was like three postcodes posher when she answered the phone. Look, because we why? Because we moderate ourselves, we adapt mm. ourselves. So we go into meetings and we moderate ourselves. We don't ask the question that we think will make a will be embarrassing if if everyone looks at us or we, we don't raise objections because we don't want to appear obstructive. So we moderate ourselves and that moderation is exhausting. So it's that weird thing. If you ever have a day where you just have meetings, 
in principle, this is just you sitting. Why, why would this be exhausting? But you can leave thinking, wow, I, f- I feel spent. Yeah. And, uh, and that's it. The critical thing about meetings is that, weirdly, when we look into what they accomplish, they seem to accomplish far less than we actually expect. Mm. And it's because quite often what we miss about meetings is the subtext to them. The, often the subtext of meeting is about it's a power relationship. It's yes. about us acting out hierarchies of, you know, the most senior person and the most junior people find themselves unwilling participants in this sort of uh, an act of hierarchy. One of the examples I saw of it is that there's this wonderful thing that actually quite often uh, younger workers have sometimes done a version of this at college, but it's called the Marshmallow Challenge. Mm. And the Marshmallow Challenge is this little exercise, you can run it in your teams, which is where you give 18 pieces of dry spaghetti, a marshmallow, about a metre of sticky tape, a metre of string, and you ask people to construct the biggest freestanding structure. (laughs) So that's it. The interesting thing about that exercise, you're given about 15 minutes to do it. The interesting thing about that exercise is the best performing, apart from structural engineers, the best performing group are are four-year-old children. Uh, The worst performing group are MBA students. And what happens when you witness what happens, it's worth running it in your team. What immediately happens is the people in this start going into a power dynamic. So people start thinking, what's going to be the narrative of this experiment? So the first part of the the experiment is, I either want to be the strategy, I I want to be the creative director or the project lead. I want to be, I, I want to know what my part of success of this is. And so consequently, the MBA students all start thinking about What's their solution to it? They want to they want to solve it. The little kids, the four-year-old kids, just start experimenting. <laughs> so almost non-verbally, they don't know the words to do things, but they start grunting, jabbing. So they discover within the first 30 seconds that the marshmallow is far heavier than you think. The MBA students don't really get to, to put the marshmallow mm, on the they're structure. They're too busy strategising. Strategising. <laughs> and so what you observe is that through this, you sort of see what meetings are like. Meetings are quite often a, a power play. Mm. People trying to contribute, to be seen to be contribute, to win the approval of this, the alpha in the group. And um, I think the moment we recognise that, we start thinking, OK, so th- those 16 hours a week in meetings, they might not be the most productive use of our time. And let's maybe ask ourselves, could we use time more productively than that. My, my feeling is we could probably half the amount of time we spend in meetings without it materially having any downside at all on the, the way companies work. Mm, interesting. So maybe kind of try and discover our inner four-year-old and do yeah. a bit more, get rid of those uh, those those politics in meetings. Very interesting. Um, so if people listening to this are um, managers or leaders, they have their own teams, um, what are the kind of things that, that they could be doing to prevent burnout, to kind of help their teams work more productively, have a better balance and that kind of thing? What what things can managers do particularly? Yeah, one of the things that, um, that I think a lot of people have observed is that quite often there are just small hacks that improve things. Mm. So, you know, probably if you look into the world of work culture, one of the, the most eminent names is, is a guy called Simon Sinek. Mm-hmm. And he talks about... His big thing is if you answer the question why you mm-hmm. do your job, yeah. then that answering that question why, which is effectively purpose, what's the purpose you you sort of try and enact through your job? Mm. If you answer that, then motivation goes up. And unequivocally, there is 
relatively good evidence that once we establish purpose in people's jobs, mm. they do seem to feel more, more motivated and do a better job. The challenge of it is that quite often, though, people answer this purpose question and then they can't work out why they're still feeling burnt out. And, you know, nurses are burnt out, firemen are burnt out, yeah. or purpose-led careers. And my feeling is, as well as answering the question why, sometimes it's quite a mundane thing. We just go answer the question how. How can I work in a more sustainable way? Mm-hmm. So some of that is, you know, value. And it's like the things that feel a long way from the, the workplace, but getting a good night's sleep or in, encouraging people to to balance work and rest in a, a healthy equilibrium. Um, taking lunch breaks seems to be incredibly helpful. Eating lunch breaks with Eating lunch with colleagues seems to build team bonding and affinity, but you don't have to do that. Okay. Um, you know, prioritising time away from work. So, you know, if you've got a working culture where people work late every night, what you'll often see, a consequence of that, is that people's ideas are less original. People people come up with less sort of flashes of inspiration. Mm. And so understanding that all of those things contribute to a system, I think, seems to be quite critical I think yeah so as a as a manager I suppose some of you know making it an environment whereby you are kind of encouraging people yeah. to, to rethink about life outside work as well and, and thinking about prioritizing things like as you say lunch breaks taking a bit of time out even if you know they're busy it's yeah. important to still kind of give people that space the whole, yeah, exactly. The holy grail that people really are talking about a lot at the moment is psychological safety. And mm. you've probably heard talk of this. And it's sort of, um, it's the reason why it's become such a widely discussed term is because there's no shortage of evidence suggesting that when you've got teams that have, have strong psychological safety, where mm. people can speak candidly to each other, yeah. maybe about their reservations, maybe about the things they really love that are being uh, unrecognised, that psychological safety seems to result in a better culture. Mm. And I think we all recognise it. When you've got a boss who allows you to speak up, yeah. you end up doing your best work, where yeah. you know where everyone isn't looking at each other thinking, who's going to tell the boss? Yeah. When there is that psychological safety, it seems to be that we do our best work. And so I think the the way that you can try and model that, I, I met a, a guy in the special service forces, so, you know, in the elite British military, and he said the way that they try and invite psychological safety is that at the end of every day's operations, and they might be out in, you know, far-flung uh, excursion mm. somewhere, but at the end of every day, he will describe what's happened today. He will then describe what actions he took and what mistakes he made. Oh, right. And... By modelling that he has made mistakes, yeah. it invites other people to say it's not unacceptable to have made mistakes. So that's the way... It's really fascinating to, to look at the way that the military do these things because mm. I think rather more than most of us in offices, the process in most offices is random and never really... Not consistent, really. Never consistent, yeah. never really boiled down, never... We never tried to establish best practice and then pass it on. Mm. Whereas in the military, they think about that all the time. It's just fascinating. Yeah. And so they try to be reductive about what the things that seem to be the behaviours that seem to differentiate us. How can we enact those behaviours? Really fascinating to watch at the way they do it. And their thing was, we learned that we get more honesty when the leader is honest. Mm. So I think it's probably a degree of, we, we hear talk of vulnerability, but it's, it's a degree of the bosses saying, 
yeah, I really messed that up. Yeah, and you kind of don't expect that from the from the That's military. Right. You expect that kind of stiff upper lip. It's probably a, a massive, it's a huge stereotype on my part saying that. But um, yeah, that's great that they're kind of looking at that and they've seen some results. I think obviously psychological safety is massively important for kind of well-being as yeah. well in terms of, you know, people kind of having a good mental health and, and well-being as well. So yeah, really interesting. Um, when you uh, were in last month, you <laughs> I know it's in your book as well, you mentioned um, our kind of inner mill o- owner as well. <laughs> and yeah. How um, a lot of us feel that we have this kind of need to be, you know, well, I'll, you can explain a little bit what you mean by a mill owner. But um, yeah, kind of particularly around the, how do we kind of create that sense of trust, I suppose, when when we do sometimes within us all have that kind of need for control as well. <laughs> yeah, there's an interesting thing that the um, I mentioned that the average working day has gone up by two hours a day. And one of the consequences of that is that we all witness ourselves, whether it's on the train in the mornings or whether it's on the sofa, we know that we're putting in hours beyond our contracted hours. Yeah. And yet, despite the fact that work has changed in that way and you know people taking laptops home to finish things despite the fact that the work has changed in that way we've all got a paradigm in our head which often originates from the first day that we were in work Mm. um which is a model of what work looks like and one guy said it to me he said i think i'm one of the good guys i think i'm a good employer but i hate it but inside of me is an 18th century mill owner. <laughs> he said, when people aren't at their desks at nine o'clock, <laughs> or when people aren't at their desks at three o'clock, part of me starts getting really angry, thinking mm. everyone's slacking, everyone's taking advantage. And he said, I hate it and I have to, I have to suppress it. But that mill owner is definitely something I can't avoid. Mm. And I think all of us have got to be at least aware of it. I think, you know, one of the accidental good things that I I always used to do was that I used to say to people who work with me, the only thing that's unacceptable is to say to someone who gets up to leave at four o'clock or gets up to who arrives at 11 o'clock is to say half day to them. Mm. And, you know, we've all done it and we've all laughed at it and we've all witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you forget in that moment is that anyone who gets up to leave at four o'clock is already riddled with insecurity, paranoia, anxiety, that they're leaving and everyone's seeing them leaving. Yeah. And everyone you feel thinks, eyes on you sometimes right. if you leave And so early. consequently yeah. they're leaving. And so when someone turns and says half day, that even though that person will say it was only a joke, it was only mm. a casual comment, what they don't realise is they've created this toxicity yeah. that affects the way that people behave, their decisions, you know, it creates anxiety. And I think all of us have got to recognise that if we're going to do our best work, we probably need to repress that Milona a bit. We need to sort of repress that inner voice that's probably encouraging us to do bad things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes the people who leave at four o'clock are actually the really productive people because they've got all their work done and they've, you know, they've maybe even managed to squeeze a lunch break in, but they've just, you know, within the time that they've been in the office, they've got their work done. So leaving the, at four should be yeah, absolutely exactly. fine. Or they're on the phone on the way home because they've riddled with guilt about it, but absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay, great. So finally, I suppose um, you, we've talked about a few things, I suppose, a few different hacks. Um, but what do you think as individuals we can do, you know, thinking about our careers and obviously career, the, the shape of careers is changing and kind of the way that we work is changing. But as individuals, what can we all do to kind of rediscover joy from our work? What, what kind of little things that you yeah, I mean, look, the tips? critical thing I would say is that a lot of us find ourselves 
um, seeing the way that work is evolving. Mm. And, you know, maybe that's a company's gone to hot desks or that the the way that their workplace is configured is differently. Or maybe some people are working remotely and so mm. there's less face time where everyone's connecting with yeah. each other. And what appears to be the case is that the less human connection there is between people, the less people feel a sense of affiliation with an organisation and a mm. team. And it's, I think... It's not necessarily something that um, we should we should allow to prevent us being more flexible. But I think the more intentional we are about saying, okay, that you know, people are working in different locations, people mm. are working in different desks, but let's ensure that we all feel a sense of a connection with each other, and let's make sure that we prioritise that. So that might be that when you have your team meeting, you don't cut the small talk down at the start. Remarkably, just the five minutes of small talk forges a connection. I, I've met this wonderful woman who um, works in the Whittington Hospital in North London, in the A&E department, really busy. And she had introduced, because her team were exhausted, burnt out. She was, yeah. she was really anxious that they were going to start going off on sick because they were so worn down. And she did this tiny intervention, which was they're allowed 10 minutes every day for training. And so she introduced, as one of their training episodes, once a week, she introduced that 10 minutes was going to be playing a game. Mm. That's it. And she had like she had some theatre games. She had hundreds of these games. So different games all the time. And she described a wonderful scene for me where they played this tournament version of Rock, Paper, Scissors. You might have seen this where everyone in the room gradually is whittled down because they've, they've played each <laughs> other. And she described a scene where the winner was a, a young Colombian nurse and the, the Colombian nurse jumped onto the table and sung the Colombian National Anthem. Wow. And she described this scene and everyone paused and said, I, I don't know if you know that anthem, but it's he heroic. I it's, don't. It's no. always the highlight of a World Cup, that one. <laughs> and, uh, and, and people paused and said, wow, what is that? Oh, where are you from? And what happened was that moment of humanity, they all said, right, next time we're all going to sing our National Anthems. Mm. And, and what happened was they went from being a team of 60 people who didn't really know each other and didn't really know personal details. They connected with each other in a human way. And I thought, wow, what an interesting way to try to remind ourselves. Because what, one of the consequences of burnout is these, one of the symptoms is depersonalization. Mm. And depersonalization, one of the ways that you might see is that the person who sits next to you chewing is driving you crazy. Or the way that that guy taps his keyboard is, is unnecessary. I'm going to have a word with him. It's a, and what it is, is gradually we, we lose the humanity of people and we see people as frustration and irritation. And what this game had done and what small talk at the start of meetings does is it just brings the humanity mm. back into our relationships. What you find is when, when the humanity is there, you tend to give people the benefit of the doubt. You tend to believe that they're doing jobs inspired by the best of intentions mm. and so it's just a reminder that the more we can forge that sync between people it seems to have a really powerful impact in us doing a better job collectively yeah absolutely i think that's that's super important and obviously you know the a lot of the conversations we're having at the moment around you know future of work and how work is changing it's you know a lot of the conversation is about technology and how technology is going to become a far greater part of our working lives but really good to hear that you know it's still really important to have that social connection and actually kind of know your co-workers understand each other support each other that's kind of key to to staying happy and, and kind of well in the workplace absolutely 
Great. Thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you. Um, that's all for today's episode of the Engine Podcast. Huge thank you again to Bruce for joining us. Um, you can follow us on Mixcloud to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks very much for listening. Bye.